Well, good evening, church. If you'll open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I tried to plan out sermon series, but I don't think I've ever stuck with a plan. Does that get any better, Mark? Mark's the pro at that. I'm not even close. I thought I'd... Yeah, okay. I know Joel agrees, but... Well, at this point, we've been making our way through the book of Colossians, and we have been exploring together the many implications of a central primary truth. Paul seems to have organized the teaching of this letter around the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And we've said it like this. We've said that nothing nor no one is better than Jesus. Nothing is better than Jesus. No one is higher than Jesus. And Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. And it is through him, we learned back in chapter 1, that all things were created. I lost my little fuzzy piece on the microphone. It falls off about every three weeks. Sorry about that. We've seen that everything was created through Jesus. And everything was created for Jesus. Which means, let's just think about that for a moment, that every single thing in your life, every part of your life, was created through him. But it's not just that all things were created through Jesus, but the Bible makes it clear that all things were created for Jesus. So if you're going to ask the question, what what is the purpose of my life? Well, you were made to live for Jesus. What is the purpose of your marriage? You were made, you're married for the glory of Jesus. What's the purpose of your parenting? Well, you are to parent for Jesus. Since every single thing in the universe was made through and for Jesus, that means that there's nothing in your life, friend. Nothing in your life that is truly yours. It's all His. It's all His. And that means it's through Him and it is for Him. And since that includes everything, we can certainly say that that includes your marriage, if you're married, and your family. So I just want to say this as clearly as possible to every married person in the room, every person that has any potential to be married, to to hear this. Your marriage is not for you. It's for Christ. Your marriage is not primarily about you. In fact, if we were to make a list, I don't think you're even in the top two, right? And in my case, uh, I may not even be in the top five or six, right? We've seen in Paul's instruction to wives over the last couple of weeks that, and we'll see a pattern that continues tonight in his instruction to husbands, is that your marriage exists first to benefit Christ, And secondly, it's to benefit others. It's to benefit others. So if you're hearing what I'm saying, here's here's what that means. So in my case, my marriage exists for the good of at least five persons before me. Through my marriage, I'm to bless God. And through my marriage, I'm to bless my wife. And through my marriage, I'm to bless my children. And through my marriage, I would argue, I'm to bless the world. As I display Christ. So do you hear who is not on this list yet? I've not yet said that my marriage exists to bless me. 
But I was reflecting on this because one of the things I've discovered, and I hope you've experienced this too, is that the more that I pour out my life to love my wife for the glory of God, the more I pour out my life for the good of my children and for the good of others, you know I've discovered? I'm really happy. I'm really happy. See, here's the pattern, and this is not just for married people, this is for everyone, so listen carefully. The pattern is that when I look to God to satisfy my needs, not to my wife, because that, that expectation is crushing, when I look to God to satisfy my needs, not my wife, not my family, guess what? It actually frees up my marriage. It actually frees up my family to be an incredible blessing to me. It takes the pressure off them. You see, when I'm not looking primarily to them to make me happy, when I, when I begin to treat my family and treat my marriage the way that God has designed them to function, when I see my marriage and my family as, as blessings created by God and for God, guess what happens? They become wonderful blessings to me because God is the giver of good gifts. But when I treat my wife or my kids like they exist for Nathan, right? You ever been there? When when I treat them like they exist for my happiness and my glory, well, they can't measure up to that. And I, I, they weren't made for that. They can't do that. And so when that happens, I respond to smother with them with anger or frustration and bitterness that they're not satisfying me the way only God can. Now, I guess I'm a little bit off on a tangent, but I say all this to say, remember, all things were made through Christ and for Christ. And that includes your life, so whether you're married or not married, and that it includes your marriage. And so tonight I'm going to speak primarily to the husbands in the room, but my prayer has been for each one of us, that no matter what your relational status is that, and, and how this relates to you, that your vision and your, your understanding of God's love for you would increase. And that if you are married, that your vision of marriage as existing primarily for you, for your happiness, that that vision would, would fade. Tonight, we're going to read the astounding command, Husbands, love your wives. It's got to be one of the least controversial statements in the Bible, right? Husbands, love your wives. And we'll hear that it's not just with any sort of love, but that we are to love according to the only true measure of love that actually exists in the world. We're to love like Jesus. And here's the thing. Love drove Jesus to the cross. And Jesus did not die for his personal fulfillment. And he calls us to take up our crosses and follow him. Now, just as we did with uh, chapter 3, verse 18, I'd like to read uh, the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 as well. Paul gives us one verse here in Colossians 3. And so I'll read uh, just one. There's a longer passage in Ephesians, but I'll just read one verse there. So Colossians three nineteen, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
We'll probably come back to that later. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then Ephesians 5 verse 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that tonight that you would speak clearly not only to husbands, but to each person in this room, that each of us would feel and see that we are loved by you, not because we are lovely, not because we are worthy of your love, but because you are love, that you loved us while we were your enemies. So Father, help us to marvel and then help us to go out into this world, into our relationships and our families, and do the same to others. Lord, I pray you would help me. I pray against distraction. I pray against uh, confusion. And ask, O God, that you would magnify Christ in our midst as he totally deserves, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope I've made this clear from the, from the introduction, but I want to make sure that we're really clear on this. We are placing our marriages into the context of worship. Right? We saw uh, in recent weeks when the scriptures say, Wives, submit to your husbands. That is unto the Lord. It is, it is in the context of worship. And, and for husbands, the same thing goes for us. That our love for our wives is to be a fragrant offering to the Lord. And it's so crucial that we get this right. Not just in the context of marriage, but for all obedience in the Christian life, that we obey not primarily that our lives would go better, though it often does, but we obey as an act of worship. There will be times, there will perhaps be many times, where your godly behavior, whether this is in your marriage or outside of it, where your godly behavior will have no visible, measurable impact. In other words, there's going to be times where you obey and it doesn't seem to work. You had those times before, right? I have. And it's discouraging. And who do you think's behind that discouragement, right? It, there will be times where you feel like you are sacrificing the whole world to obey, to love your wife, to submit to your husband, and the obedience hurts so bad, and then it doesn't seem to work. You may submit to your husband and he remain cruel. You may love your wife and she remain critical. But we've got to get our heads around this now, that that is not the point. We are not talking about tips for a better marriage, and we are certainly not talking about how to change your spouse. Other churches talk like that, but I don't think the Bible talks like that very much, so we're going to stick with the book, right? We're talking about how to have marriages that are good, yes, but primarily marriages that please God. That's what we're after. Now remember, look down at chapter 3, verse 17. Remember what Paul had just said to us, what, five weeks ago? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. Be a husband. Be a wife. Be a widow in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you see that? That is the context. It is, it is worship. It's the context of our lives. But let's, 
look more specifically at the directive that's given to husbands. Last time I offered by way of summary three primary directives that are given to the wife in the scriptures, not just Colossians 3.18, that's only one verse, right? But, but uh, summary directives, right? We said that wives are to love their husbands, help their husbands, and submit to their husbands. And even though we focus most of our attention on uh, the S word, right? The controversial S word, uh, I, I want to do the same by way of summary for, for husbands. Because we're not going to look at all of the role of husband, um, but there's two primarily, the way I understand it, two primary directives for husbands given in the scriptures. Husbands are to love your wife, and husbands are to lead their wife. I tried not to say wives, because that can sound weird, right? It's, I've struggled with pluralities all through, the, all through this manuscript, trying to get this right. Alright, this is the clear teaching of chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I'm a, little, I'm a little tempted to speculate. Have you ever wondered, why is it that Paul commands husbands to love their wives? I mean, isn't this the most basic, non-controversial command in the Christian scriptures? Like, this is everywhere. The second great commandment. What is it? Do you remember? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's all over the Bible. Even Leviticus gets in on the loving your neighbor action, right? This is, this is everywhere. So, and the spectrum could not even possibly be bigger. It's not just love your neighbor, but Jesus says love even your enemies, right? So if you have a spectrum of neighbor to enemy, who would not fit on that spectrum, right? Nobody. There's nobody that is, is outside of that spectrum, right? And I surely, I know, look, <laughs> I'm a realist. I, I, I counsel a lot. I know marriage can be, I'm married, like I know marriage can be hard, but if you don't think that you can fit your wife or your husband on the spectrum of enemy to neighbor, then you, you know, you've got some, got some problems you need to sort out with someone else, right? But this is, this is one way that our text tonight applies to hus- not only to husbands, but to everyone in the room. Not only does the text call directly for husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church, and, 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 and it, it extends there to all of our neighbors. Right? This is a command that is not just for husbands to love, but it is for all of us to love everyone. So all that you're going to hear tonight is applicable to all of your neighbors and all of your enemies, perhaps in slightly different forms, but the standard of love is the same. We are to go, we are to take this call to love as Christ does, and we're to take it to all of the world. But we mustn't overlook the thrust of the text before us, which is a specific instruction to husbands. I find it interesting that, that the smart people that I read, right, they tell me that if, they, if you look at ancient cultures and you look at, at the ancient Greek and Jewish cultures and their familial laws, there is a cultural expectation and even a law in some cases that wives submit to their husbands. But there's not a law anywhere that we have seen, anywhere that I've heard of, for, for husbands to love their wives, right? It's... It's a sense in which the Bible was radical 
Husbands, love your wives. We often view verse 18 as the radical verse, but I think the Colossians may have read verse 19 as the most radical verse. And maybe this is why Paul is specifically calling husbands to love their wives. It's not that wives aren't to love their husbands, but perhaps he understands that there are specific dangers Specific susceptibilities to husbands and wives. Perhaps he knows that wives are tempted to undermine and spurn the leadership of their husbands. While husbands are particularly susceptible to ruling their wives in a harsh and loving way. But in any case, we are left to ask the question, how? How? How exactly should a husband love his wife? What, what should this look like? Shoot, I mean, in our culture, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to love? Our culture has gone insane with love. I mean, just think about it. We have to ask the question and actually define it. What is love? I mean, recently, in light of the cultural revolution, we have seen love be redefined. We've been told love wins. Or we've been told, love is love. Right? There's a definition for you. But we have to understand, what is love, not according to the world, because it changes, but according to the scriptures. Right? And we'll look at this more in depth, but I want to start by giving you a pretty simple definition. We could do big complicated ones, but, but I'm not in the mood for complicated, right? So let's, let's keep it simple. And mainly we're talking to guys and guys, we, we like it simple, don't we? What, what, is, what is love? Let's say that loving your wife means active care for her well-being. Will that work? It means active, unceasing care for her well-being. Now, you'll notice, hopefully, that I did not say anything about romantic feelings. I didn't say anything about physical attraction. I didn't say anything about sexual passion or chemistry. I certainly didn't say anything about falling in love or being in love or whatever that means, right? Cupid is not helpful for us here. Love that is, love is genuine. It is a sacrificial concern for the well-being of someone else. That's what it means to love. It's not primarily concerned about the self, like what you can do for me, but it is outward oriented. Of course, the word that's used here is the well-known, the very familiar agapeo, right? Or agape love. And it's the word that most of the time when it's used in the Bible, it's referring to the sacrificial, self-giving love that is perfectly modeled for us in who? Christ. Which brings us back to the best way that we can know or understand what love is. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or we know this, that we love, why church? Because he first loved us. The Bible teaches that the only way to know love, the only way to know true love, and the only way to actually find it, to give it out to other people, is to know the love of Jesus Christ. And that fits perfectly with the command that Paul has given back in Ephesians 5 to love as Christ has loved the church. We husbands are to love in a particular manner. As Christ loves, as Christ has loved the church. 
And so I don't know of any more helpful way or any more practical way to know what love is, especially in the context of husbanding, than to consider the love of Christ for his church. So what I'd like to do with the rest of our time tonight is to consider how has Christ loved the church? How, in what way has he done this? And then call us as husbands, or whatever your station in life is, to imitate this love in how we love our wives and in how we love those around us, whether they be neighbors or enemies. And I pray that each of us would marvel and delight as we consider the love of Christ. So the first thing we see about the love of Christ is that Christ, husbands hear me, Christ took the initiative. Christ takes the initiative to love. First John 4, 19, I'll say it again. We love because he first loved us. What about 1 John 4, 10? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Husbands, we are to take the initiative. We, when we, when you are, when the Bible speaks of you being as a leader, lead by taking the initiative. This is not, honey, bring me a beer from the fridge kind of leadership, whatever that is, right? This is take the initiative in loving. Christ did not wait for us to take the initiative. He did not wait for us to initiate love before he died, before he gave himself for us. And he did not wait for us to become lovely. He did not wait for us to become lovable. Christ did not wait for us to even do our part. He took the initiative in love. Love in your marriage should begin with you. Husbands, love should always, it should be initiated from us. Now this may sound easy or chivalrous. Is that a word? Chivalrous? Or heroic, right? It may sound like that, but in practice, it's really hard. It's not like the Hallmark Channel. If you have to watch that, ta- that station, I'm sorry for you, right? Because, <laughs> because this may, unless you're serving your wife, right? <laughs> You see, because what this means is that we are to, we are called to initiate love even when our wives are, are cold or when they are angry or when they are moody or in the middle of a fight. Perhaps you've had that experience where after a fight or a discussion, whatever, right? After a discussion, you've both said your piece and maybe it's a bad one. You've even tried to make things right, but you're stuck, you ever been there? You're just, you're just kind of stuck. All right, the world isn't falling apart maybe, but you know, it's not a good one. It's a bad one. And you're at an impasse. Both people are hurting. Both have sinned. Both feel mistreated. Who should take the first step? Who should be the one to step out in love? Who should be the one to bleed in that moment? Husbands. It may not be pleasant to hug a cactus, but it's possible. And husbands, we should do that. Many women rarely experience this kind of love from their husbands, at least when they're not after some sort of 
bedroom activity, right? It can be so rare that it can shock them when they do. I once heard a story of a man who, he was at work, and he decided to go home and show his wife how much he loved her. So before going home, he somehow stopped and showered and shaved, and he put on some, uh, like an iron shirt and some cologne. He got her a bouquet of flowers. He went home, he went to the front door of his own house, and he knocked. His wife came to the door, she answered the door, and she exclaimed, No, this has been, this has been a terrible day. I had to go to the emergency room with your son. I, I, he had to get stitches in his leg. Then your mother called. She's coming over for two weeks. And then the washing machine broke, and now you showed up at the house drunk. <laughs> We're to be initiators. Habitual initiators. Let love always begin with you. Wives love freely, but men, husbands, initiate. Be the first. The second way we see Christ's love for the church is we see it's sacrificial. Christ's love is sacrificial. What about this verse? For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. He gave. Greater love has no one than this, than someone do what? Lay down his life. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. True love costs something. It's expensive. I'm not not talking about the jokes about, I I don't like marriage jokes. I've got a few tonight. But generally, I don't like them because they mock God's design most of the time. But, but, so I'm not talking about like, oh, you got to spend money on flowers. I'm not talking about marriage cost, love costs something in that you give of yourself sacrificially. Love is, is by its very nature giving of the self. It is sacrificial. You can do like, like loving sort of things for all sorts of like wrong reasons to get something in response right? And you, you might even be doing nice things. You might even have fuzzy feelings while you do. I, you can tell I'm really romantic, right? You might even be having fuzzy feelings while you do nice things. But if you're not giving, you're not loving. So often I talk with folks, especially, especially guys, and, and one of the activities we'll do is we'll try to brainstorm. We'll try to brainstorm specific ways to love for, for him to love his wife. Sometimes we brainstorm for me too, right? But brainstorm ways to love their wives. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know, well, like, I take out the trash. I uh, take the kids to, you know, cheerleading or, you know, I, I cook dinner. And sometimes they'll say, hey, that's great. Like, I do some of that stuff too for, you know, for, for the same reasons. But the question I have for you is this. Does your wife feel loved by this? I mean, like, does she feel loved by this? And we're like, I don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, like, we don't, we don't, we don't know. Sometimes, and one of the cues that I'll look for and I'll encourage God will think like this: is right. Look for something sacrificial. Does it cost something? I don't care about taking the trash out. I I don't know if my wife feels loved by that because I don't really. I just. I don't like trash in the house, and I'm not going to have my wife drag the trash can down to the road. Like, like th- that is not a thing that I do. I don't, I don't love her by taking the trash out, right? There's other ways that I need to figure out how to love her. So look for things that cost something. Look for things that are inconvenient. 
One of the most practical ways that you can do this, if you just want to start conditioning yourself in this, is to look for ways to prefer your wife. Choose her preferences. You probably have a chance to hear about her preferences from time to time. Did that come out sarcastic? Right? You probably, you probably know some of her preferences. It's a wonderful chance. Give yours up for her. Give yours up for her. I heard it once said that marriage is when you, <laughs> marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm beside someone who's sleeping in a room that is too cold. Does anyone else have that problem? Like I don't understand how this I don't understand how this works, right? But guys, you can prefer your wife Crank up the heat, pay the extra 30 bucks, and sleep on top of the sheets, right? This is a way to choose, like choose, her, choose her preferences. But usually, and joking aside, sacrificial love costs much, much more. Preferences are on the table, yes. But true love, it means laying down your life. Jesus died for his bride. That means your dreams... Your hobbies, your interests, your preferences, your comfort, your privacy, go on down the list. Anytime that they interfere with you pursuing the well-being of your life, they go. Every time. They go. Once when Mark Twain was lecturing in Utah, a Mormon acquaintance of his uh, came up to argue with him about the subject of polygamy. And after a long, rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said, Can you find for me one single passage in the Bible that forbids polygamy? And Mark Twain said, Certainly, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> now, I'd greatly dislike marriage jokes, but I guess Mark Twain gets a pass because he's Mark Twain. But, but I'll also give him a pass because I, I think we can redeem this joke, right? Though we are not called to serve our wives as masters, we are called to follow our master as we serve our wives, as we give our lives up in service for their sake. This is what Jesus did. We are to imitate him. A third, so love is sacrificial. A third way that we see Christ's love for the church I don't know how many I have tonight. I've got probably 15 in my office, but we don't have 15 tonight. But a third way that we see how Christ loves the church is that he loves her in spite of her faults. He loves her in spite of her faults. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, that's when he died for us. Men, you don't need me to tell you this, but your wife is a sinner. She will fail you. She will let you down. She will disappoint you. And she will annoy you. There may be times that she may lie to you. She may betray you. She may even cheat on you. But when, when did God show sacrificial love for us? While we were sinners. Most of the prime opportunities that you will have to love your wife come while she is sinning. When your wife fails, 
big, small, uh, it doesn't matter. When she really, I mean, when she really blows it, one of those powerful things that you can do for her, timing's got to be right, but you can hold her in your arms, you can look her into, you can look in her eyes, and you can tell her, I love you. In the midst of failure, in the midst of sin, even when it's not right, even if she's not repentant, I love you. I see you. What you're doing is you're saying, I see you as you are. I see exactly who you are, and I love you right now. Look for ways to do that. It may not be quite that obvious, but look for ways to do that. God does not call you to love some future, more sanctified version of your life, of your wife. You'll get to do that later, but that's not what he's calling you to do now. He's calling you to love your wife as she is right now. Because he loves you as you are. And he loved you when you hated him. A couple married for 15 years was beginning to have more than, more than usual uh, their share of disagreements. And they wanted to make their marriage work, and the wife was reading marriage books, and she had an idea. So she floated out to the husband, and for one month, they agreed that they would drop a slip into a fault box. A fault box. Can you imagine, babe, how big my box would be? My goodness, man. Be a refrigerator. They drop it in the fault box, and the fault boxes would provide a place to let the other person know eventually about daily irritations. This is such a bad idea. And the wife was very diligent in her efforts and approach, so she began to write. Hmm. Leaving the jelly lid off the jar, right? Wet towels on the shower floor or on the bed, sorry. Uh, Dirty socks, not in the hamper, and so on and so on, right? Um, On and on until the end of the month. And then after, at the end of the month, they went out to dinner. And after dinner, uh, they exchanged boxes. And the wife gave her husband um, the box. And he opened it and he began to read and reflect on all the things that he had done wrong to irritate his wife that month. Then the wife opened her box and began to read. But she noticed that all the messages were the same. The message on each slip was, I love you. I love you. I love you. Husbands, aggressively love your wives in spite of her faults. When she disappoints you, don't criticize her. Move towards her. If you ever find yourself repulsed by your wife, repulsed by her behavior, by her attitude, by her words, whatever it is, that is a very good time to reflect on how Christ has loved you. And it's a good time to move towards your wife and initiate sacrificial love. Treasure your wife even when she is not lovely. That is love. And this should go without saying, but I suppose we need to say it anyways. This also applies to the physical appearance of your wife. Move towards her. Move towards the parts that she's uncomfortable about. Love her and treasure her. I'll move more quickly through these last few, but here's a fourth way that we see Christ's love for the church. 
Christ demonstrated his love with action. Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in truth. We know as we read the Gospels that Jesus did not love in word and deed only, but in truth. The scriptures say that God demonstrates his love for us. Perhaps you know the DC Talk song that says, Love is a verb. And guys really struggle with this. So let me explain, oh, because I know that you're thinking, hey, I'm flowing like a bottle of Drano. But saying, I can't believe I just did that, saying that you love your wife is not the same thing as loving your wife. Like, do you understand this, right? Do you, saying that you love your wife is not the same thing as loving your wife. Writing I love you on a card is not the same thing necessarily as actually loving your wife. Christ demonstrated his love in visible, tangible ways. So we must learn to love in ways that are visible and clear to her. My goodness, I won't... I can, how many, I mean, think about it. I've had so many conversations in my marriage where I was like, well, I was trying to love you like this. And she's like, what? Right? Have you been there before? Right? I talk, this is like half of marriage counseling, right? Where, where, we, where we think about how, how this works, right? Um, you, you, but you know, you may say, well, I don't know what she wants. Like I'm trying to love her. I thought I thought I was doing this because I love her. And she's like, I don't care if you do that. Like that doesn't say I love you to me at all. Right. And so sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll think about this and I'll ask a guy like, okay, well, how, what are some visible, tangible ways you can love your wife? How would your wife feel loved? What could you do? <laughs> and we're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And, and you might say, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's clear. And I'm like, Hey, I get it. I'm also from Mars, just like you. Like I, I get it too, but I've learned a really effective way to do this. Guys, are you listening? Get your pencil. Get ready. Ask her. Like, ask her questions. In fact, do you want an idea for a date night? My goodness, when I preach on marriage, you know what that, you know what that means at home? Do you know how much ammunition I give my wife, right? <laughs> like, I have a feeling we're going to go home and talk about having a date night, right? Um, and that's great. Uh, but if you want an idea for a date night, here's something, here's something you could do. Take your wife out for dinner. Oh, man, I'm in trouble, Right? Bring a piece of paper and bring a pen or your phone or whatever. Sit down with your wife and after dinner, during dinner, whatever, ask her this question. What do you believe your greatest needs are? And how can I do a better job meeting them? Now, after you try to convince your wife that you are not, in fact, drunk, <laughs> you can repeat the question, right? And you can actually use that pen, use that paper, and actually start making a list. A list of your wife's greatest needs. This is not an opportunity for you to share what her, your perception of her greatest needs are. I think you need to go to the gym. Do not say that. All right? That is not, what's, that's not what we're, <laughs> that's not what we're after, right? But actually start making a list of your wife's greatest needs. For example, she may say, I need time in the word. Can you help me? If you've got young kids, can you help me 
get time in the Word. I need a moderate amount of sleep. Don't have to be eight hours, but it'd be great if it was five, right? Or I need time with you, husband. Or I need kale twice a day, right? Like whatever, like, hey, I'm just, it's just what I know, right? So after you have lovingly and gently picked your wife's jaw up off the floor, like wipe it off and turn the paper over and ask her a second question. All right, you with me? Does anybody need me to repeat the question? (laughs) Wives are like, say it again. (laughs) So you ask her another question. You ask her about her needs and then you ask her, what are your deepest desires? And how would you like me to help you fulfill them? Now, what I've learned is that, is that this usually doesn't work the first time. It doesn't work because at this point, your wife is so shocked that she is concerned about like identity theft or like personality disorder. Like, who is this man who's asking me these questions? Or she may feel so uncomfortable to try to, try to answer that question. But, but seriously, here's the thing. Pay attention. She may not answer the questions there. But pay attention and figure out, listen, what are your wives, what is, <laughs> there we go again, what is your wife's needs and what, what are her desires? Pay attention and listen. Take time to learn your wife. We could do a whole other sermon on that in First Peter chapter 3, maybe some other time. But take time to learn your wife. And then learn how to demonstrate to her your love, in meaningful ways that fit her. Learn her love language and speak it. Right? Work at it. And it will take a lifetime. But as Mark Twain so helpfully and sarcastically pointed out for us, if you only have one wife, this is much easier. Right? You only have one wife to do this with. I remember sitting in marriage counseling one time and a guy was, I was asking him questions like this and he's like, I don't know. And he was looking at me like I knew what his wife wanted. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm trying to figure my wife out, right? Like you got your wife. I got my wife. You study her. I'll study mine, right? You got one wife. So give your life to learning. And the best way to do that is to ask questions and actually listen. Pay attention. You only have one wife to learn. So learn. And you only have one wife to love, so go, go get after it. Now, there are dozens and dozens of ways that the Bible shows how Christ loved the church. I mean, just think of it. I, I mean, does this exhaust the love that Christ has shown you? It's incredible. But I want to conclude tonight by speaking, first of all, to all the women that are, that are in this room. You may be sitting here tonight silently grieving that no man has ever loved you like this. This could be because you're single, you're wanting to be married, and you're not married. It could be because you're divorced or widowed. Or it could be, more, more likely, that your husband simply is not this kind of man. And if that's you here tonight, then I hurt with you. But I want to remind you of something. No matter what your relationship situation is, no matter what your marriage is like, no matter who you are married to, there is one who does love you like this right now and all the time. Do not 
forget him. This is why God has created marriage. It is to point you to Christ. And I'm convinced that when we, inside of marriage, as we experience its brokenness and the disappointments and the way that it does not work the way it's supposed to, those are some of the best times to see how marriage points us to Christ. Jesus is a better husband than you could ever dream of. And he's yours. And that's true for men and women, singles and married. So I want to plead to each of you. This is why God created marriage. As an arrow to point us to Christ. So look to Jesus. Find your fulfillment. Find your happiness in Him. And if you struggle like I do to love your wife and to love your neighbor and to love your enemies the way Christ has loved us, look to Jesus. He has provided atonement and propitiation for our sin. And that gives us hope. We will not be held accountable for our failures to love. And all these are great cause for joy. So let's go and love the world like we have been loved. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Please forgive us when we treat others according to their sins and not according to your mercy. Would you help us as we leave this room and try to put these truths into practice in a hundred different situations and a hundred different problems? Give us grace. And Lord, help us to see Jesus more clearly. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.